Let's pray one more time. Father, our Lord and our God, open up your word to us today. We want to understand the significance of this passage. Use it to show us our own hearts and how we need to change. Do not allow us to leave here the same as when we arrived, Father. Amen. I want to start off and just ask you to imagine yourself on a desert island, like you've seen those pictures in the cartoons, you know, where just a little round uh, spit of sand, you've got one palm tree under the blazing sun. Maybe you're surrounded by circling sharks. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you've got that picture. You've seen that, you've seen that before. So if you were on this desert island, what would you need to survive on that island? Water, food, shelter. What would you, what would you take with you if you knew you were going there? Not if you were stranded, but if you knew you were going there, what would you take with you? Yeah, just ponder that for a minute. Now, now let's change the picture just a little bit. Not a, not a uh, little spit of sand and island, but a desert. And you're wandering through a wilderness on your way to the promised land. What do you need most to survive in this wilderness world? What's the one thing that you must absolutely have to make this journey to the promised land. Well, the Israelites did not know the answer to this question until that one absolute necessity was taken away from them. I want to I want to recap just a little bit. You know, we we have traveled from the 10 commandments, the book of the covenant you know, which was how to live out the Ten Commandments in a very practical sense. Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, received God's plan for the nation's worship, you know, detailed instructions on the tabernacle, along with the furniture, the utensils, the garments for the priests, and how to consecrate the priests. We've gone through all of this in chapters 25 through 31. And then we got to Exodus chapter 32. And you might remember the tragic event that took place here. I mean, just as God was finishing speaking to Moses on the mountain, he informs him, the people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from the way that God commanded them. In their impatience and pride, they've made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. I mean, within 40 days of making a covenant with God, they had broken it. And God said to Moses in chapter 32, Behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now therefore leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume, consume them. And then following the Lord's command, we read a very difficult passage about how the Levites went through the camp executing judgment on those who were still practicing idolatry 
for when it comes to idolatry and immorality, there can be no compromise. And Moses, Moses then implored God not to destroy the people for the sake of God's own name and God's reputation <clears throat> and faithfulness to his promises. And God relented. And at the end of chapter 32, God is telling Moses to guide the people. But there will be additional punishment due to the people. And that catches us up to Exodus 32. And if you have your Bible, if you want to turn there or just follow along, it's Exodus chapter 32. Now the Israelites had suffered many painful consequences for their sin with the golden calf. And now it was time to move on. Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, get up from here, you and the people with whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your seed I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, starting with verse 1, you see the Lord instructed the people, Pack your bags, prepare to continue the journey to, to the promised land. Now, so far, so good. I mean, even after everything the Israelites had done to displease God, he would still make good on his promises. We serve a God who makes good, who keeps his promises. He would give his people blessing after blessing. With Moses as their leader, they would finally leave the wilderness and enter the land that God had promised them in the covenant. All their enemies would be defeated by the power of his avenging angel. God would sweep the land clear of danger. The Israelites would take possession of the land and all of its abundance. So you see, God had promised them property, protection, and prosperity. Oh, everything's going to work out good after all. There was only one problem. Although the Israelites were going to still go to the promised land, God was not going with them. It says in the uh, second part of verse 3, For I will not go up in your midst, because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you in the way. Now, this verse does not mean that God has trouble controlling his temper. Now, the Bible describes God for our own benefit a lot of ways, a lot of times in human terms. And this is one way that he accommodates our limited understanding. It does not mean that God has the same level of sinful emotions that, that we have. We need to understand that when God decides to destroy a people, it is not because he's lost his cool. It is because he responds to sin in perfect righteousness. He is a God of holy justice. And this made it too dangerous for him to stay with Israel. It's safer for them if he didn't go at all. And the problem, of course, was Israel's sin. 
the Israelites were not covenant keepers, but covenant lawbreakers, as God so aptly put it, a stiff-necked people. They were arrogant. They did not submit to God's law or God's timing. You know, even if they did submit to God's law, it was not in his timing. They were haughty. They were stubborn with pride. And under these circumstances, God would not go with them. And this was really for their own protection. Because at any moment, he might have to judge them for their sin. And they would perish. The people wanted and needed God to live close to them. Yet he was unable to do so because of their sin. Since the time that he had first told Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt, God had been drawing his people closer and closer. He, He answered their prayers. He provided for their needs. He taught them the law. He even made plans to build his home in the middle of their camp. God was totally committed to the relationship. He was their God and they were his people. But at the beginning of this chapter, as we start exploring, we see there are troubling signs that God and his people have grown apart. In verse 1, God refers to the Israelites as the people rather than my people. You see, he's starting to distance himself. In verse 2, he promised to send an angel It's no longer my angel as it was in Exodus 23 and even in Exodus 32. And my angel typically is understood to mean God's very presence. Uh, The angel could have been the son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity. But now God was going to send an ordinary angel. I guess you would call it heavenly rank and file, but it was not going to be God's angel and then at the end of verse 3 we have seen that God dropped a bomb that he was not going with them but what does this mean what did this mean well this meant that the plans for the tabernacle were going to be put on hold the whole purpose of the tabernacle was to create a sacred place where God could dwell with his people And if God's decided not to go with them, not to be in their midst, then the tabernacle serves no purpose. You know, this is the very same language that that God used when he was telling Moses to start to to give Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. He He told Moses this back in chapter 25, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And so now when God says, I will not go with you, he specifically means there will be no tabernacle in the center of the camp. Now, the Israelites were desperate to have God go with them. I mean, the irony, of course, is this is the very reason that they made the golden calf. They wanted God or a God to be there with them. But now because of their sinful idolatry, he would not be with them at all. I mean, consider this irony of it all. God was kind of responding to their own idolatry by saying, you made a God with a face on it because you longed for my presence. 
You made a graven image to accompany me on your journey because you longed for my nearness? Well, now you're going to have neither the presence of your idol nor my presence. Wow. You know, we've, we've talked and talked about how God desired to dwell in the midst of his people. You know, these, the, we've gone through the details of what the construction of the tabernacle would be and all of the, uh, utensils and everything that would go inside the tabernacle, every, everything to, uh, uh, to construct it. And then when the construction would be complete, that God would dwell with his people. You see, by possessing the tabernacle, the people of God would be set apart from all the other peoples of the land. The glory of God would be made known to the nations. In a real sense, this was meant to be a missional tool. With Yahweh dwelling in the midst of his people, they could experience a taste of heaven on earth. But then came Exodus 32, the golden calf, and it seemed as if God was going to stop this before it even got off the ground. I mean, in summary, real quick summary of what happened is the Israelites had sought God's presence in an unauthorized manner. And the result was that they lost out on his presence entirely. They forfeited God's intention for, for them by their sinful attempt to manufacture his presence. This is what happens when we worship other gods, especially gods that we can feel in touch. Rather than bringing us closer to God, our idols drive us away. Martin Luther said this, he said, Whatever a man loves, that is his God, for he carries it in his heart. He goes about with it day and night. He sleeps with it. He wakes with it. Be what it may, wealth, self, pleasure, renown. So we've got to ask ourselves what preoccupies our thoughts. What do we treasure in our hearts? You see, God wants to fill our lives with his presence. He wants to be in our midst. But when we carry other things around, pursuing them and thinking about them, there's no room left for God. And so we come to the point where the Israelites were facing life without God. No divine presence in their camp. No tabernacle. The Israelites would have to go it alone. Now, what, what do you expect the reaction of the Israelites would be? I mean, let's put ourselves in their shoes. They've, they've completely broken the covenant with their sovereign Lord and King. But God has relented from his anger. He's not destroyed them. He's actually assured them of a land of milk and honey. I mean, a land to call their own. He's assured them of victory over their enemies. He's assured them of prosperity. Just no tabernacle. Just no presence among them. Mm -hmm. I mean, what would your response be to such an arrangement? 
I mean, he was offering to bless them. There would just be no relationship with them. I mean, it would be like if God promised you real estate, land that had was agriculturally overflowing with produce. God promised you protection from your enemies. God promised you prosperity like you have never imagined. You would have health. You would have wealth. You would be taken care of. But all of this would come at the expense of his presence. How would you respond? In other words, how important is it for us to know God? I think that most people want God to help them overcome the obstacles that they're facing in life. Most people want to reach a promised land. But how many are really interested in having a personal relationship with the living, holy God? I think people would be happy to have God defeat their enemies and happy to let them into his kingdom, even if they didn't have his presence. You know, let me spin it another way. Are you okay with having Jesus as your mediator, knowing that he has atoned for your sins, knowing that you're going to go to heaven when you die, knowing that there is no hell in your future, but not walking with Jesus personally along the way and not having him be the main attraction of heaven that awaits you? Are you okay with this type of arrangement? Are you content with having God's blessings without God's relationship? Yeah, there's been a lot of research done uh, among the younger people, and uh, someone by the name is a, soci- a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith. He coined a term called moralistic therapeutic deism. And basically, it's what I just described. A moralistic therapeutic deism is the view that people are essentially good, that they're going to go to heaven when they die. There's a God, but he's essentially there to make us happy and not particularly involved in our lives. That'll work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You see, when, when, when I was growing up, some people would call this fire insurance, the hope of seeing the loved ones after death, a comfortable moral life in the meantime. I mean, for many, this may be all they really know of Christianity. I'm afraid for a lot of people, it may be what they settle for. But the Israelites knew better. They did not say, oh, well, no worries. We're good with this. They refused to settle for any blessing apart from God's very presence. As we move on in Exodus, Exodus verse starting in verse 4. Then the people heard the sad word and went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. 
So Yahweh said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in the midst for one moment, I would consume you. So now put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horab onward. So you see word quickly spread through the camp. God's not going with us. God's not going with us. God's not going with us. And instantly the people were dismayed. Their distress was indicated both by their attitude and their actions. There were visible signs of brokenness. You talk about openness and brokenness. It was happening in the camp at this point. They begin to cry. And partly because they were sad to see God go. But they were sorry for their sins. They took off their ornaments, their jewelry and other finery as a symbolic act of repentance. And by taking off their jewelry, they were rejecting their pagan idols and recommitting themselves to the one true God. There's a parallel for this in Genesis. When Jacob renewed the covenant at Bethel, he told everyone in his family to take off their jewelry. And he buried it in the ground with all of their idols. And the Israelites did similar thing here at Mount Horeb, and they did it eagerly. God told them to take off their ornaments, but scripture says they stripped them off, indicating how ready they were to get right with God. This is a sign of genuine repentance. You know, when we realize that something is causing us sin, do we cling to it and then just slowly, slowly eventually step away and and or or do we do like what the israelites did when they realized it was causing them sin they stripped it off immediately and they never went back to it the same way for us when god convicts us of a sin we need to turn from it and never go back to it you see once they stripped off their jewelry They kept it off. I mean, we can read it here, but the grammatical structure indicates they went without these ornaments, this jewelry, from Mount Horeb onward. This was a permanent change. Another sign of genuine repentance. Getting rid of sin once and for all. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of any sin, we need to take off whatever is leading us into sin and never put it back on again. Israel's heart was in the right place. So when the people heard that God was not going with them, they were distressed in the right way and for the right reason. And they were not just feeling sorry for themselves. They were truly repenting of their sin. And they were doing this because they wanted to restore their relationship with God. This was everything to them. As far as they were concerned, if God was not in their midst, then even if they still made it to the promised land, they had lost the only thing that really mattered, their relationship with God. And they did not want to be led by an angel. They wanted to walk with God. And their example Their example reminds us that we need to love God more than we love his blessings. I mean, this this 
time that we're approaching the time of Thanksgiving, there are so many blessings that we have from knowing God. So many things to be thankful for. We had the blessing of repentance. I mean, being able to see our sin and turn away from it. We had the blessing of forgiveness, receiving pardon for all of our sin. Yeah, you know, there's the blessing of justification, being declared righteous in God's sight. We have the blessing of sanctification, of growing in godliness, the blessing of adoption, of having all the rights and privileges of a child of God, the blessing of perseverance, of staying with God to the very end. I mean, I, for myself, I, I, I could put in there, uh, I've experienced the blessing of employment. But when that goes away, I still cling to God. You know, the blessings may come and go. But the biggest blessing that never goes away is God himself. Knowing him is better than anything we can imagine. And so we should not focus as much on what he does for us to the point that we neglect who he is to us. You know, how blessed are we to walk and have a personal relationship with the living God? That is something to truly be thankful for. How blessed is it to to open his word and read and understand and meditate on his holiness, his goodness, his love. It's blessed to know the father as creator, to know the son as a redeemer, to know the spirit as the sustainer of life. And if we know God, if we really, really know him, the rest of his blessings will follow. But the first thing, the main thing, the fundamental thing is to know God in a personal way through Jesus Christ. Uh, Many of you are familiar with uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Well, he wrote something in there. He, He asked the question, What were we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus brings? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, Contentment than anything else? Knowing God. So if this is true, which it is, then we should keep God at the center of our lives, at the center of our experience, the same way the Israelites wanted to keep him at the center of their camp. Now at this point, as we're reading through this section of Exodus at this point, the Israelites weren't quite sure what was going to happen next. God had told them he wasn't going with them. Now, at this point, so they had repented of their sins. They had taken off the ornaments of their idolatry as God had commanded. 
And they're waiting to see what happens next. And as you read through this, if you don't know the story, kind of there's a little tension right here. Is God going to go up with the Israelites or will they have to go without him? And we don't find this out until later in the chapter because while we're waiting in suspense, we read about Moses and the tent of meeting. And that's where we are with starting in verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it happened whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it happened whenever Moses entered the tent that the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent and all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent then Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, and his attendant, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So just to clear up one thing, this tent of meeting was not the tabernacle. What makes this somewhat confusing is elsewhere in Exodus, uh, they actually refer to the tent of meeting at one point, uh, to refer to the tabernacle as the tent of meeting. But at this point, the tabernacle had not yet been built, and Moses had his own private tent of meeting. And one significant difference between these two tents is the location. The plans were to have the tabernacle in the center of the Israelite camp. But Moses pitched his tent outside the camp. And the scripture says way outside. The Bible stresses that it was located some distance from the Israelites. It had to be far away so that Israelites would understand they were still under divine judgment. Their camp was a place of sin. And so God said he could not dwell there. So at least for the time being, if the Israelites wanted to meet with God, they had to go outside the camp. Yet we can see God had not abandoned them entirely. The tent of meeting was a temporary tabernacle, an alternative place to meet with God. And what happened here was amazing. Moses would leave the camp and walk out to the tent of meeting. And as he, as he was going, the people would stand and worship but from a distance. They were looking to their mediator as he went to meet with God. And when Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down from heaven and cover the entrance. A visible manifestation of the glorious presence of God. And there the Israelites stood. They saw Moses go in. They saw the pillar of cloud come down. And I think they might have realized that it was God's design for that pillar of cloud 
to be right in their midst, right in the middle of the people. But there they were now, worshiping at a distance as Moses communed with God. Now, to me, what what was going on inside the, the tent was just as amazing. Moses talked with God. Moses had talked with God back at the burning bush. Moses had talked with God on top of the holy mountain. But now God was coming down to meet with him in his tent. He was condescending to communicate with his prophet. There in that tent of meeting, God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, please understand the phrase face to face does not mean that Moses could see God. For we know later on that it says no man may see me and live. But it's a figure of speech here intended to show that God and his prophet enjoyed direct communication. Here in Exodus, something truly amazing. Moses had immediate access to God. This was a level of intimacy and fellowship that no human had ever experienced since the day that God had banished Adam and Eve from the garden. Moses, or God spoke to Moses like a friend to a friend. And so what we see here is there there was still hope. God had told the Israelites that he would not go up in the middle of their camp but he was still talking to their mediator. There was a place outside of the camp where God met with Moses and anyone who wanted to know God's will could approach the tent of meeting, talk things over with Moses and then wait for Moses to inquire of God. And at this time, although God was not in their midst, they could still go out and meet with God through their mediator. The people were distanced from God by their sin, yes. But there was still a way for them to connect with God. As we think about this and think about what Israel had to do, what they had to go through to meet with God, I think we ought to consider the amazing privilege that we have today. Where do we go to meet with God? We don't have to stay at a distance. We don't have to go outside the camp. We don't have to approach a tent of meeting. We don't have to consult with a prophet or a priest. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have immediate access with God through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Today, that tent of meeting is inside of us because God has come to make his home in us. This is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has sent his spirit to live in us. The Apostle Paul had this kind of as a prayer that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This means that today, now, we are the place of God's dwelling. 
from the very moment that we receive Jesus into our hearts by faith, we are in direct communication with the Almighty God. There's a uh, letter that John Winthrop wrote, one of America's founded fathers. Uh, and he wrote about his experience when he first became a Christian. He said, I was now grown familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. If I went abroad, he went with me. When I returned, he came home with me. I talked with him upon the way. He lay down with me. And usually I did awake with him. And so sweet was his love to me as I desired nothing but him in <coughs> heaven and earth. This is what happens when someone becomes a Christian. God comes into our lives in a whole new way. He, we have constant communion, communion with him. We read the Bible and God talks to us like a friend with a friend. The Holy Spirit applies his holy word directly to our minds and to our hearts. All the promises in scripture are promises that God makes to us in Christ. All the warnings are warnings to us as well. All the commandments are commandments to us. But the communication is two-way. This is amazing. When we pray, we are speaking back to God. We tell him how much we love him. We confess our sins. We share our worries. We take to him our problems. We ask, we plead for help. We speak with God like a friend to a friend. And that's what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I said at the beginning, what would you take to a desert island? For me, it would be whatever I need to make sure I have that personal relationship with Christ. You know, now that God is with us and within us, we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. God never abandons his friends. God's invested far too much in us to abandon us. Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down a life, his life for his friend. And then he went on to say, you are my friends. I have called you friends for everything that I learned from the father I have made known to you. We have the same privilege that Moses had. But if anything, our privilege is even greater because we know what a sacrifice Jesus made to secure our friendship. He laid down his life for us, dying for our sins on the cross. And so as, as we study what I would call the history of salvation in Exodus, we see that God is moving in the direction of closer and closer intimacy with his people. God is always seeking to restore intimate fellowship that we have lost through sin. And all the way through Exodus, he is trying to find a way to dwell with his people. 
He doesn't do it in Exodus 33. But he hasn't given up yet either. He's still meeting with Moses. And soon they will go ahead with the plans for the tabernacle. And by the end of Exodus, when we get there, we will see him come down to dwell with his people in glory. You know, the tabernacle was only the beginning. As we approach Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God came down in the person of his son and tabernacled among us. He wanted to have an even more intimate relationship with us. So he sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith. One day we will be in his very presence. And then, as scripture says, we will see him face to face. This has always been God's plan. He wants to draw us closer and closer every day in his relationship with us. He wants to develop a deeper, more intimate relationship with us every day. He wants us to hear his voice speaking through scripture. He wants us to trust his promises. He wants us to depend upon his grace. And he wants us to live by his spirit. And he wants us to talk to him growing more intimate with him through prayer. So all of these are the things that I'm thankful for. With or without a job. Now let's pray. Lord, may the Holy Spirit apply this to our hearts Conform us to Christ. May we be so thankful that the Son of God tabernacled among us. Fill our hearts with your presence. We give you thanks, Lord, for all of the blessings that you shower that you shower us with. But Father, more than the blessings, more than the blessings, may we always love you and desire you and seek you. May we keep you at the center of our lives and find joy, delight, and commitment and contentment in knowing you. We give you thanks, Father. Amen.